George Washington famously stoic, perhaps cryptic, someone who is self-controlled, restrained, and while prone to bouts of rage and temper, as many were during the time, rarely showed emotion, did his best to stay nonpartisan for much of his administration, and figured out what it meant to lead a nation, what it meant to be president of a free and democratic society, what it meant to have equals, even at a time where equality was not spread throughout all humanity. Today we're going to take a deeper look into what shaped the mind of this man, a man that we are still talking about hundreds of years later, the man who birthed and led a nation into the world superpower that it remains today. A life that started out in allegiance to the British and eventually revolted and set us on a path to become the leader of the free world as it stands today. And this is a man worth exploring, a man that historians have gone back and forth in many respects on where he was coming from, what he was about, different things like that. And of course, many things shape a human experience for sure. But what happens in those first early adolescent years is going to have a special impact in shaping the foundation of the mind. Today we're going to look at one of those fundamental things that clearly shaped the mind of a man that had a limited education, who did not have the resources and education that many of our founding fathers had, and, and but still conducted himself on that same level, still achieved notoriety on a strata of society that would have generally been inaccessible to him as a person of minimal education that ended around 11 with the death of his father, I believe. This is a great accomplishment that we can look at, that how did a man with limited education, limited resources, rise to the status that he did and that we know of him today? Today we're going to look into something that certainly will give us a clue at the foundation of that mind and played a big part in his education and hints at a classical education that some even still apply today. We're going to look at the 110 rules of civility and decent behavior in company and conversation, a paper found among the early writings of George Washington. This is the American Reader Podcast. I'm Jacob McDonald. So, as we've talked about before, Washington was not one that we could necessarily put in the category of self-made Americans and the Founding Fathers as we would say about, say, Hamilton coming from tragedy, coming from the West Indies as an orphan and experiencing lots of death and pain and suffering and just having this rapid ascent of his own merit 
throughout life. George Washington did not have quite that dramatic of a story, but his story is certainly not one that is free of drama in itself. He did experience death of siblings and parents, as virtually everybody did at the time. But he did have a roof over his head. He was born on a plantation. They were a slave-owning family. They did have enough to have a family and work and, and oversee a small family fortune that provided relatively well for the family. I would not say that they were aristocratic necessarily by any means outside of, you know, as much as would by nature come with owning slaves. But again, I want to remind everybody that slavery, you need to look back on people as a product of their time. I certainly don't ever want to do anything to condone slavery in any respect, but to throw away the lives of great people throughout history because they engaged in barbaric practices and things that demeaned the value of human life and people made in the image of God. You know, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Washington did many things, and as I've said, probably virtually every episode, if you're lucky enough to be talked about at all after your death, the last thing you would want is people taking the worst parts of your life and throwing it all away based on that. A person engaging in sin and indecency and the degradation of human life, as as bad as that is, you know, it's a, it's never, it's never that simple. There's a lot of gray area to go with it, and the role of slavery in Washington's life is certainly a complicated one that can be explored. He learned to loathe slavery later in life, and what that looked like and how he executed that over time was. Not absolute by any means. It wasn't like he up and freed all of his slaves or did anything like that out of conviction, but he did treat his slaves with respect. As, as far as we can tell from his writings, he would generally restrained from physical punishment. He did a lot of things to prevent the breakup of families, and he's even we even see that he didn't necessarily sell his slaves because out of, out of conviction once he realized what was going on was wrong and he was very much against it because he didn't see how slavery, how selling slaves to a more torturous environment would be the solution here. And, you know, I'm certainly not defending anything in that realm. It's a very sensitive subject as it should be. We are all human beings made in the image of God, inherently valuable for that reason, regardless of skin color, cultural, ethnicity, and whatever else you might say, whether I agree with your way of life or not, certainly doesn't demean that inherent value that you have as a human being. I just want to shed some light on the complicated issue of the time and pull us out of this shallow framework of like, well, they were crappy people because they owned slaves. Well, it's not that simple. There are a lot of things happening today that I that we will know in a hundred years how cruel and horrible that they were, but that we are not going to see or understand as we're living in it. Now, 
I'm not saying that they didn't see or understand the cruelty of slavery and how that was hypocritical to the cause at hand with revolution and equality and democracy. But take it with a grain of salt. Try to dig deeper and understand and maybe see some different perspectives of where people were coming from. Because living in a world today where slavery is finally overcome, if you ever look into the history of how we overcame slavery permanently as a nation, and largely as a world, but as a nation that led the world, well, I wouldn't say we led there many nations in England and, and that were certainly working on abolition long before America was, but Slavery was not overturned overnight, and it wasn't overturned absolutely, because absolute and dramatic, drastic change typically does not create lasting change, as we saw in Harper's Ferry, where John Brown just grabbed a couple of people and some rifles and went and held a place hostage to end slavery because he understood how bad it was. A noble cause that ended with a lot of bloodshed and no progress and made nothing happen. It was the work of people like Abraham Lincoln that was done slowly over time at the ballot box, trusting others and fighting those political battles in peace. And then eventually in Civil War, as it was unavoidable and we well know, but that it happens one step at a time gradually with the Missouri Compromise, with the the southern and the northern states going back and forth and conceding different things to each other to get to a point step by step where slavery can gradually be overcome and outlawed and the nation can move on. But that is all a sidetrack to today's main point is I wanted to take some time to look at what shaped the mind of this person that was so stoic, that never overcame his fear of public speaking, that was very short of words, limited of education, but revered and universally loved and people on both sides of the aisle at his time wanted him to be general. They wanted him to be president. They wanted him to be president for a second term. No matter where everybody was at politically, they knew that Washington was the man to lead and set that tone. So where does that begin? For those of you following along in Ron Chernow's Washington book that I am also reading along with these episodes. This is going to take us back a little bit. We covered the Journal of George Washington and his first major military operation and all of that in our last episode. And today we're going to rewind back to what most historians think was about Washington's 13th year. He was 13 years old based on... Now that, that could change. Obviously we don't have great data of birth dates and deaths and things from this time period. People weren't as meticulous about tracking those types of things. But based on some dates that were found in the notes of Washington's Rules of Civility papers, we've determined that he is most likely about 13. And this Rules of Civility, just to give you some history, was originally founded in the Jesuit Society of the French, the French Jesuits in the late 1500s is where we believe these rules of civility originated. They were translated into the, into English, you know, 100, 200 years after that, somewhere around there, and became 
a common part of a person's education at the time, a good classical education that everyone engaged in at the time is learning these rules of civility and decent behavior. This was especially intriguing to me because we live in a society today that is this postmodern society, this enlightened society. And you know, not that logic and reasoning should be thrown out the window. By any means, I think that's a wonderful advance. And as far as it affects faith, which is also very important to me, I'm a firm believer and a little bit more of a realist that your faith should be able to stand up to reason. We shouldn't hide from science or reality to be faithful. That's, you know, that's just ignorance. We can look at it in the right perspective. Those things don't always have to butt heads. But when we get out of the religious realm and just look into the everyday civil and common decent behavior kind of realm in a postmodern world that is characterized by the loss of objective truth everything goes you are your own master you are you know the whole world is dictated by your most base impulse we're told all day long whatever makes you happy is what you should go do and follow your dreams and serve yourself and more or less, you know, I don't think there's a whole lot of people openly preaching to serve yourself, but that's the the underlying message of it all is this, like, you are the most important thing. It's your right to be happy. Do what makes you happy. And we've lost that sense of discipline, that sense of, like, image matters. How you present yourself matters. Serving a higher purpose than yourself matters. That happiness is not a God-given right in your life, and if you're lucky enough to find it, that's great. But it's a cheap, it's a cheap out on life. Discipline and purpose—that's what we need to be seeking out—is what I personally believe. But I digress. This isn't I'm not going to give a moral episode necessarily outside of these rules. It's just something to consider: is are we open to the idea? that rules of civility and decent behavior have a place in 2023 America because it kind of it kind of goes with the idea that there is a right and wrong and we're very sensitive to that in American culture the second you suggest that you might be standing for something that there is right and wrong and absolute truth and things like that people get very upset a lot of times people aren't always comfortable with that because you know you're telling someone else that might be your idea of of wrong that their life is wrong and and everybody is right all the time i i take a huge issue with that in particular but again i digress so i wanted to read through this and see what place do we have for this in today's world how different does this look do I mean I haven't read this yet in its entirety and I'm excited to see you know things that I can learn from and apply as a lesson today and in my own life because I do think manners are important I do think the image that you put out to others is something that should not be thrown away I do think life should be more than just yourself and it should be you know some of these things that are demonized as you know, bad things, I think, do have a place and should be taken with taken into consideration. So why don't we keep that in mind as we go through these some of these rules. So let's start out going through some of these rules and perhaps see some of Washington's notes on these rules. I'm looking at 
a actual images from the Library of Congress of Washington's rules of civility that he hand copied out himself as an exact as part of his education in an attempt to you know increase his education of his own volition I believe because and if someone is going to fact check me on this please do I believe because I'm just pulling this from memory but I believe his father Augustus was the main driver of his education, and he passed away when Washington was about 11, I think, if I remember correctly, and this would have been around that time he was 13, so it already shows the drive and the discipline that Washington had to make something of himself in the world. He took it upon himself to copy these things out by hand and to instill them into his daily life and and make those things happen, so this is a common theme throughout Washington's life that we'll see, and... This is one of his earliest writings. Again, these are copies of the French Jesuits in the 1500s that were a common part of people's education at the time, and perhaps some of his footnotes on it, I believe. So, Washington's Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation, a paper found among the early writings of George Washington. Let's check it out. I am going to skip the, well, why don't we read the preface here? The unceasing desire of the public to learn more and more of the life and character of General Washington induces me to publish entire, and for the first time with literal exactness, his rules of civility and decent behavior in company and conversation. So this is the actual, this is someone in the mid-1800s, it looks like, that actually pulled this from Washington's papers and archives and, and got it into a readable volume. Um, for the first time, with literal exactness, his rules of civility and decent behavior and company and conversation. They were written by him at about the age of 13, and with the exception of some school exercises, are the earliest of his productions in the order of time, which have been preserved. It is proper, too, that their publication should precede that of his diaries and journals, taken by me from the original manuscript and arranged in chronological order with notes, which are now nearly ready for the press. The first of the series Washington himself entitles A Journal of My Journey Over the Mountains, begun 11 March 1747-8. to It will be seen from this date that he was then but 16 years old and one month old. So again, the, the manuscripts that this gentleman is pulling from is the image of the manuscripts we're actually looking at today. I'm looking at PDF copies from the Library of Congress. All right, moving down here. The text following is an exact copy from the original manuscript having been carefully compared with and corrected therefrom, even when errors or omissions are obvious. First, every action done in company ought to be done with some sign of respect to those that are present. Footnote for rule number one here. The thoughtful reader will recognize in this rule the germ and spirit of all rules of civility and the universal key to good behavior. So I think with that note, we've indicate the importance of this. All rules of civility and company and conversation will really stem from this initial germ in the first rule. So let's reread that. Every action done in company ought to be with some sign of respect to those that are present. 
So again, like we were talking about earlier, your image matters. How you present yourself matters. I think we're often told that you matter and make yourself happy. Just be you and do all this stuff. And while it's not that there's not a place for that in life, for sure, I certainly appreciate the more traditional perspective of like you are in the company of others. Do things that show a sign of respect to the company that you're in. I think there's a lot to pull from that outside of specific examples, which I don't really care to get into right now. But just understanding that you're in a group of people, how can you serve them? How can you give respect to what they do, their position, their life, asking others about their day? That's a huge weakness of mine. I'm an oversharer. I'm a talker. I will jump right into my life if given the chance. But I have so much respect for the people that I see on a daily basis that have that rule of civility that you don't hear about their life until you until they're directly asked and it's pulled out of them. And even then, it's, it's with some restraint and, and with some perspective of the company that they're in and what's appropriate to share and what is giving respect to the people that they're speaking to. These are the people that ask you how you're doing, how was your weekend, things, things like that. I have deep admiration and respect for these people and am working to become more like that every day. So it's beautiful to see that in a rule. Number two, when in company, put not your hands to any part of the body, not usually discovered. Mm. So I think that goes without saying, don't touch anywhere you shouldn't be touching in front of company. Just keep your hands to yourself. It would be a lot more difficult in an age where this is written, especially in like the 1500s, let alone the 1700s, when Washington is writing this out, that both ages where showering and cleanliness was limited. That would be difficult to keep your hands not going to different parts of the body, I'd imagine. Third, show nothing to your friend that may affright him. Hmm. Fourth, in the presence of others, sing not to yourself with a humming noise, nor drum with your fingers or feet. Interesting, I've... It seems like that would be something that could be more charming or endearing as I've traditionally thought about it. But then I guess by nature, things that are charming and endearing tend to turn into annoying and a nuisance later on, the more that you're with that person. Fifth, if you cough, sneeze, sigh, or yawn, do it not loud, but privately. And speak not in your yawning, but put your handkerchief or hand before your face and turn aside. Go away privately to do those things. I like that. Sleep, number six. Sleep not when others speak. Sit not when others stand. Speak not when you should hold your peace. Walk not on others when... on. Uh, walk not on when others stop. A little bit of the Yoda speak going on there. That speaks to my soul. I think I went on a rant about it a few episodes ago about I just want, I don't even care what the subject is, but like any subject anywhere, I want to be in a room of people that have the capacity to pay attention. God forbid a speaker makes the cardinal sin of speaking for more than six consecutive minutes and they lose the whole crowd and everybody's sitting on their phone or getting up or taking breaks or whatever. So to see a rule that's like, give someone your attention. You don't you don't need to be sleeping while they speak. You don't need to be, you know, and I think sleep is a little extreme, but really in any, any circumstance, give people your attention. Do not be distracted. Do not get up. Show that you have the capacity to make yourself 
even uncomfortable to show that respect to the speaker and expect that respect back. And don't sit when others are standing and don't speak when you should hold your peace. Interesting note on Washington's life is Washington was famously stoic, as we talked about earlier, and is certainly not one known for his speeches. Many, many other famous figures from the revolutionary period wrote his speeches for him. He was not a good speaker, and he kept a lot of things to himself. But it just goes to show that with discipline and with good manners, and as we saw in his military expo exploits early on, far before he was qualified, you can put off a really fantastic image and get away with a lot that you're really not qualified to get away with based on how you're going to conduct yourself. And as a person who did not speak nearly as much as others, I think that worked very well in his favor and a lesson to me today. The more for me as a talker and someone who's generally going to be putting my life out there, it's a, it's a good reminder that the more I open my mouth – the bigger chance I'm going to say things that I regret and look stupid and different things like that. So just learning to hold my peace. Seventh, put not off your clothes in the presence of others, nor go out your chamber half-dressed. Like we were talking about earlier, it should be more than you. You shouldn't dress for the day thinking, what makes you happy? What feels good to you? And that's what we're told all day, every day. You're in charge. You're important. Do you and all of those things. And it, I, I think that there is a great place for how you present yourself matters. Put yourself out there with some poise, with some confidence, with some grace and things like that. And that's not a bad thing. Now, everything comes in balance, of course, but, you know, have some respect for yourself and show that in the way that you dress. Eighth, at play and at fire, it's good manners to give place to the last calmer and affect not to speak louder than ordinary. Hmm. I don't know what a calmer is, but always looking to accommodate others, uh, I think is, is generally probably what they're meaning there, an effect to not speak louder than ordinary, no need to yell at people and things like that. Ninth, Spit not in the fire, nor stoop low before it, neither put your hands into the flames to warm them, nor set your feet upon the fire, especially if there be meat before it. Hmm. We don't see a whole lot of fire time anymore, and or at least I I don't. I mean Well, I used to get a ton of fire time when I was drinking, but not not so much anymore. Um I don't I'm not much of a spitter, but apparently that's a thing. So don't spit into the fire and um, hmm. don't stoop low to put your hands into the flames to warm them or set your feet on the fire, especially if someone's cooking meat with it. I guess that makes sense. From early colonial times, this is a footnote, the kitchen of American houses had always a fire in it. Oh, I guess they're going to explain it. To which the stranger, when fatigued, cold, or hungry, was admitted to hospitality without ceremony. In new settlements, the kitchen was the first room built, and it was generally of considerable dimension, with a large, open fireplace in which cold weather was kept a blazing wood fire for both use and comfort. Number 10. When you sit down, keep your feet firm and even without putting one on the other or crossing them. That's tough. I cross my legs 
all the time. I wonder if they were... I imagine people sitting much less often at that time. They were probably much more physically active. But I'll tell you, my time in the military, really, that was the first time it was brought to my attention that crossing your legs was not a great thing. And boy, that was one of the most memorable experiences of my life when the drill sergeant saw me crossing my legs. Number 11, shift not yourself in the sight of others, nor gnaw your nails. Number 12, shake not the head, feet, or legs, roll not the eyes, lift not one eyebrow higher than the other, wry not the mouth, and bedew no man's face with your spittle. By, and then it's kind of cut off, by, but what they're saying there is speaking too close to someone and, and spitting on their face, so... Be aware of personal space and your distance. Don't roll your eyes, shake your head, things like that. So really being aware of how you're presenting yourself in conversation with others. Again, going back to giving them attention. Footnote. Down the wide-throated chimney from a cross pole hung chains and crooks on which at times were suspended the heavier pots and kettles. Interesting. And from the wide chimney jam swung the freighted crane over an ample stone hearth, above which, and in front of the fire, revolved the loaded spit, and at certain times of the day, many implements of cookery. Yet this room, even when there were others, was nevertheless almost exclusively used by the frontier farmers, as the family and guest assembly and dining hall. In the south, where planting was more extensively followed and colored servants did the work, there was usually an out-kitchen, often detached entirely from the mansion house, where the cooking was done. In these cases, the family sitting apartment was often the dining room. The cooking stove and cooking range had not then been invented. To a people living in a sparsely settled country, engaged in subduing the forest and defending themselves against the savage Indian, their words, not mine, such as ours were in colonial early, such as ours were in early colonial times, the ninth rule had an aptness not now apparent. The book in which Washington wrote the rules of civility. Okay, so you can see how rules of civility would be important in people that aren't a part of the mother country in England. They're out on their own. They're having to defend themselves on a regular basis, worried for their life. And when they're not, they're worried for their life from starvation because they're having to make their way and settle the frontier. So it's important to instill this manner back into society and keep civilization there. Number 13, kill no vermin as fleas, lice, ticks, and in the sight of others. If you see any filth or thick spittle, put your foot dexterously upon it, if it be upon the cloths of your companions. Put it off privately, and if it be upon your own clothes, return thanks to him who puts it off. Hmm. I would imagine we don't run into a lot of situations where we're dealing with vermin, fleas, lice, and ticks in conversation with others, so... Let's continue reading this footnote here. So the book in which Washington wrote the rules of civility has been damaged by mice, which ate away a portion of the back and some of the lower end of all the leaves. Interesting. Which in places has involved one or more lines or parts of the lines in the text. Rule 12 and all the other rules written at the bottom of any of the pages have been nearly destroyed. Every word and letter, however, that remains has been copied and are here given. The matters, number four, the matters treated of in this rule are not agreeable subjects to discuss, yet as society existed when they were formulated, such questions forced themselves upon the attention of the people. 
speaking of fleas and ticks, doesn't really apply today, but put yourself in the time. Explanation. The flea was, in early times, and indeed still is, a great pest. In certain localities, and particularly in warm, sandy countries, or wherever domestic animals are harbored in or about dwellings, small as the flea is, he makes himself felt. There is a township in North Carolina named Flea Hill. I wonder if it's still there today. That'd be interesting. The California sandhills, too, are noted for being infested with these troublesome insects. The existence of lice is usually ascribed to neglect of personal cleanliness, and to a great extent this is true, yet gentlemen who have served in the army, officers as well as common soldiers, know how difficult it is where men are crowded together to prevent their becoming troublesome. Spitting on the floor, which was deemed an offense 150 years ago, is a vice which still exists even at the present day. Yeah, I guess when I'm around tobacco chewers and things like that, spitting is very common. I just don't personally do it. So it's interesting how that... I, I wonder if people were chewing tobacco back then. I imagine. The method suggests for hiding the nuisance was, in its spirit, considerate and praiseworthy. Bare floors were then the universal custom. The floor mat came slowly into use, and carpets of still later date. It is probable that when these rules were compiled, there were but few carpeted rooms in the American colonies, and the modern bathroom and tub were almost unknown. Rule 14. Turn not your back to others, especially in speaking. Jog not the table or desk on which another reads or writes. Lean not upon anyone. Hmm, I'm going to keep that in mind. Don't lean on things. Keep my hands just calmly at my side. Give undivided attention. I don't need to be shaking my leg or leaning on any shelves or desks or anything like that. Number 15. Keep your nails clean and short. Also your hands and teeth clean, yet without showing any great concern for them. Interesting. So keep them clean, but don't be obsessed. Hmm. Number 16. Do not puff up the cheeks. Lull not out the tongue, rub the hands or beard, thrust out the lips or bite them or keep the lips too open or too close. Wow. Number 17. Be no flatterer. Neither play with any delights. Neither play with any that delights not to be played with all. Neither play with any that delights not to be played with all. Be no flatterer. So don't flatter people. Flattering. Okay, so what they're saying is don't flatter people on this on the level like if you if you wouldn't say it to everybody, don't say it to that person. I see. Okay. Read no letters, books, or papers in company, but when there is a necessity for the doing of it, you must ask leave. Come not near the books or writings of another so as to read them unless desired or give your opinion of them unasked. Also look not nigh when another is writing a letter. Don't eavesdrop. And don't read in front of people. Just If you're not going to be engaging with them, just go find your own spot. Hmm. 19. Let your countenance be pleasant, but in serious manners, somewhat grave. Obvious. Okay. 20. The gestures of the body must be suited to the discourse you are upon. 21. Reproach none of the infirmities of nature, nor delight to put them that have in mind thereof. 22. Show not yourself glad at the misfortune of another, though he were your enemy. 23. When you see a crime punished, you may be inwardly pleased, but always show pity to the suffering offender. And then some things were lost to time and rats, apparently. Interesting. Some, some, certainly some Christian influence there, which would make sense from a Jesuit society, if I'm remembering what Jesuits are correctly. 
that you show mercy to the offender, but still believing in justice, but don't relish in, in their punishment. I like that. 25. Because for me personally, I, I tend to have very extreme views when it comes to stuff. Or, or I think I, I tend to come out, like when I really boil it down, I don't have super extreme views, but I verbalize them with an absolute firmity that I don't necessarily mean or stand behind. So having that restraint to just acknowledge and not offer these straight jumps to conclusions and to out-of-control emotions or condemnation, I think, is a great reminder. 25. Superfluous compliments and all affection of ceremony are to be avoided, yet where due, they are not to be neglected. So don't give lots of compliments unless they are due. And pulling off your hat to persons of distinction as noblemen, justices, churchmen make a reverence, bowing more or less according to the custom of the better bread and quality of the persons amongst your equals, expect not always that they should begin with you first, but to pull off the hat when there is no need is of affectation in the manner of saluting and re-saluting in words keep to the usual custom. So don't do it if it's not called for, but if it is, make sure you're doing it right. As far as bowing, taking off your hat, and showing respect. We don't have a whole lot of positions left in our culture today that really have a traditional show of respect. Really outside of the military, and that's only between military members. I can't really think of anything that would... I mean, I suppose we pull over for emergency vehicles. It's about the closest thing we have. See, what, you know... That's kind of where this kind of stuff that intrigues me. Would society not be a little better off if there was some kind of universal standard there? I mean, I suppose we still do the national anthem at like sporting events and things like that, and people are expected to stand, put their hand over their heart, things like that. So, you know, it'd be nice to see us not lose that in society as well. 27. Tis ill manners to be to bid one more eminent than yourself be covered as well as not to do it to whom it's due likewise. He that makes too much haste to put on his hat does not do well. Yet he ought to put it on at the first or at most the second time of being asked. Now what is herein spoken of qualification and behavior in saluting ought also to be observed in taking a place, sitting down for ceremonies without bounds is troublesome. So just don't be too eager. I guess is really the the takeaway there. Just take your time. Show restraint and self-control. Number 28. If anyone come to speak to you while you are a sitting stand, up though he be your inferior, and when you present seats, let it be to everyone according to his degree. 29. When you meet with one greater quality than yourself, stop and retire especially, if it be at a door or any straight place, to give way for him to pass. I like that. I like that. Again, that seems antithetical to our culture today, to even admit that people are of greater quality than ourselves. It seems to me that we're kind of taught, and it's ingrained in every show, in every advertisement, in every everything, that like you're the greatest quality that there is. You're number one. You're the God you serve. You know, Because when we reject God, something's going to take that place, something is going to be God in your life, whether it's, oh, 
I'm not going to go into a sermon, I suppose, but I think it's important to remember that there are always people better than you. And humility is, is a great place to start for any kind of improvement. There are people better than you. Recognize it. Recognize what your strengths are. Believe in yourself. Have confidence. But part of that is understanding that there are winners. There are losers. There are many in between. And show that respect. And physically show that respect, apparently, at this time. So I think we still see that today as far as government in particular. Senators, representatives, presidents, things like that at least in organized gatherings. Number 30, in walking, the highest place in most countries seems to be on the right hand. Therefore, place yourself on the left of him who you desire to honor. Ooh. But if you if you but if three walk together in the middle, but if three walk together, the middle place is the most honorable. The wall is usually given to the most worthy if two walk together. Hmm. Place yourself on the left of him who you desire to honor. That's interesting because if you're walking like along a street, it seems to me chivalrous to be the one that's closest to the street. And, you know, if you're walking with a child, they would be furthest away from the street or a date or a woman or whatever. But then again, it's not like they had cars and highways at this time. So, but I mean, they did have carriages and horses and roads. So, Interesting. And then the most honorable, the wall is usually given to the most worthy. If three are walking together, give the most honorable the middle spot. That seems to happen naturally in social circles, I've noticed. It's kind of the person, whoever is that glue of the social circle, seems like a lot of circles that I've been in, there'll be one person that if they're not there, the circle kind of more or less... It, falls apart or at least degrades in quality. And so they're usually in that middle spot where they're accessible to everybody. That's why it's, I, I typically try to avoid social gatherings with long linear, like vertical tables where it's difficult for people to engage outside of the person that's right in front of them probably for that. But it's interesting to see how I, I've never heard that rule before. And I doubt the average person has, but it just kind of naturally happens in society today. Very interesting. 31. If any one far surpasses others, either in age, estate, or merit, would give place to a meaner than himself, the one ought not to accept it. So, it above once or twice. This one is cut off and damaged, so I'm not totally sure what they're getting at there, but I still like the humility of acknowledging that there are people better than you. Acknowledge it and show respect for that and learn from that. One of my favorite quotes is that we should be approaching everybody, no matter who they are, no matter what station in life, their age, gender, race, whatever, that everyone has something to teach you and something to learn from. And more importantly, are made in the image of God, as we've discussed earlier, and have inherent value and quality because of that. 32. To one that is your equal, or not much inferior, you are to give the chief place in your lodging, and he to who tis offered ought at the first to refuse it, but at the second to accept, though not without acknowledging his own unworthiness. I like that. I think that one still a lot of people hear, like, oh, you got to reject it the first time and then take it the second time like that. We, we hear a lot of jokes about that, but there's some 
there's some humility there. There's some beauty in that, I think, in showing it kind of allows for both parties to be respected in that. 33, they that are in dignity or in office have in all places precedency, but whilst they are young, they ought to respect those that are their equals in birth or other qualities, though they have no public charge. See, this is interesting because when you're talking about equals in birth, or this is the product of a specifically monarchical society, both in the French and in the British, and at a time where George Washington was 13 and still under British rule and loyal to the British government as a colony of Great Britain, that's all people had known for hundreds to thousands of years is kings and where, where genetics and birth really had a lot to do with determining your outcome in life. Which I think is an important, kind of the lesson that I pull from there is that, you know, they're not making a case that, they're not making a case for birth and genetics as making you just an inherently better person than your peers necessarily, or at the very least, they're not, they're not trying to defend it. They're just working within the confines of the system and the life that they are in. This is the way the world is, so we're going to make some rules and boundaries about it. And that's a very, I found a, to be a very helpful perspective when reading any kind of history is it, you know, it's naive to think that because we're in the 1700s that everybody wanted slavery and everybody engaged in slavery and everybody had the same thoughts on slavery that it simply wasn't the case in any period of humanity. You know, you're not going to get a hundred percent agreement on anything for anybody. There's going to be things that are more or less accepted and taboo in any society, but what are we going to do about it? You know, certainly we should be self-critical and engage in change and try to make the world a better place, but also recognize the confines of the system that you are in and work with it, whether you agree with it or not, because that's where you're at. 34. It is good manners to prefer them to whom we speak before ourselves, especially if they above us with whom in no sort we ought to begin. So let others speak first. That's a tough one for me. That is a big goal for me this coming year, for sure. I have so much respect and admiration for those people that have that. My daughter already has that so much, and I just, I love that. And it's an embarrassing weakness of my own that I hope to overcome. 35, let your discourse with men of business be short and comprehensive. 36. Artificers and persons of low degree ought not to use many ceremonies to lords or others of high degree, but respect and highly honor them, and those of high degree ought to treat them with affability and courtesy without arrogancy. So interesting. So, so kind of putting a foundation in place for people of a higher station to still treat those lower than them with respect. 37. In speaking to men of quality, do not lean nor look them full in the face, nor approach too near them, at least keep a full pace from them. Personal space. 38. In visiting the sick, do not presently play the physician, if you be not knowing therein. That happens so much today, but uh, I suppose we have a much greater access to medical knowledge than any other period in human history, so... There's some justification for it. 39. In writing or speaking, give to every person his due title according to his degree and the custom of the place. 
40. Strive not with your superiors in argument, but always submit your judgment to others with modesty. That's a tough one. So don't... See, this is something that I am working on so much. I want to be that person and am working toward that, a big goal of mine this next year, too. Submit your judgment to others with modesty. I'm a huge fan of the quote, argue as if you're right, listen as if you're wrong. And I think there's a way to push a point and make yourself known in a conversation also with humility and modesty and allowing conversation for others. All the time I end up in conversations that I just accidentally steamrolled without understanding because I just jumped to more extreme views than I meant to initially, sadly. So... All right, so moving on. Sorry, with these exact images, it's very difficult to keep the place up on screen that you want to be almost there. Forty-one. Undertake not to teach your equal in the art himself professes, if flavors of arrogancy. That's a very important one. It is so easy in the information age where experts in any field are right at our fingertips through the internet, through anything, and we become, you know, in sports metaphors, the couch quarterback or something like that, you know, criticizing professionals and in in their own game. It's crazy that we've become so accustomed and used to that level of arrogancy. And that's something I'm at least relatively good at. Like I'm, at I'm at least aware of it. And I try to catch myself doing it when I'm judging, say a speaker at church or some other capacity and then think, well, man, I'm not up there speaking. I'm not able to do what they're doing. What, you know, who am I to pass judgment on that? It, it flavors of arrogancy. So great reminder. And then it has an example of a clown and a prince, but it's cut off and damaged. 43, do not express joy before one sick or in pain, for that contrary passion will aggravate his misery. That's a tough one for me, but I'm slowly learning that, and I think that I'm interested to see, because the benefits of that aren't immediately obvious to me, but I trust that it is the right thing to do and, and one that I want to pursue. 44, when a man does all he can, though it succeeds not well, Blame not him that did it. That's polite. 45. Being to advise or reprehend anyone, consider whether it ought to be in public or in private, presently or at some other time, and what terms to do it, and in reproving show no signs of kolar, but do it with all sweetness and mildness. Hmm. I see a lot of that today in leadership stuff, a secondary, you know, Kind of something I'm interested in as well with leadership stuff, where it's, you know, make praise public and criticism private, do it respectfully. I like that. 46. Take all admonitions thankfully in what time or place soever given, but afterwards not being culpable, take a time or place convenient to let him know it that gave them. Hmm. So be open to feedback from people. Mock not, nor jest at anything of importance. Break no jests that are sharp-biting, and if you deliver anything witty and pleasant, obtain from laughing thereat yourself. So don't laugh at your own jokes. 48. 
that's just that's just safe, you know, because you don't know if it's going to be funny if other people aren't laughing yet. You got to you got to see that. So, forty eight. Wherein wherein you reprove another, be unblameable yourself. For example, is more prevalent than precepts. You don't need to point out what other people are doing wrong. That's a big lesson for me. Let your example speak for you and your life. I have felt that so much recently. I feel this need, you know, when I learn something or achieve something or, you know, get on a certain path or read a book and have changed my life because of it and things like that, that everybody needs to know about it, that I need to tell them what they're doing wrong and to get on it. And I don't need to do that. I need to let people live their life and I need to be an example for others that if they're interested, they can pull from and not be so arrogant as to think that they need to pull from my life or that I'm doing something so well because pride does come before the fall. 49. Use no reproachful language against anyone, neither curse nor revile. Be not hasty to believe flying reports to the disparagement of any. Gossip. Throw it out. 51st. Beware not your clothes, foul, unripped, or dusty, but see they be brushed once every day. Day at least, and take heed that you approach not to any uncleanness. Clean yourself. You know, I fear that society will start going down that road again, where anything goes, where look however you want. We've seen all kinds of craziness and just in the general appearance of humanity in American culture in the 21st century. It's, I mean, images you see on the street today would have been laughed out of the room or in a circus, say, even 50 years ago, let alone 100 or 150 years ago or something like that. But now they're openly pushed and accepted. And I'm not saying that that doesn't come with any advantages. Certainly there's advantages and disadvantages to anything in life. But I am afraid that it's going to lean toward the unclean again and have that be pushed as an acceptance thing. And Well... I think society will ebb and flow, so hopefully we don't ebb that far, I suppose. 52. In your apparel, be modest and endeavor to accommodate nature rather than to procure admiration. Keep to the fashion of your equals, such as are civil and orderly with respect to times and places. I like this. So it's not don't do anything fashionable. To try to keep up with fashion and look stylish is sometimes demonized in itself. I don't agree with that, and this gives you a good balance between the two. You know, make your clothing practicable, accommodate nature, but also keep up with the fashion of your equals. Just don't try to outdo the whole room. 53. Run not in the streets, neither go too slowly, nor with mouth open, go not shaking ye arms. Not upon the toes, nor in a dancing, and then the rest is damaged. That seems like an obvious one. But don't be a mouth breather either. Hmm. 54. Play not the peacock, looking everywhere about you, to see if you be well, decked, if your shoes fit well, if your stockings sit neatly and clothes handsomely. So don't always be checking yourself, I suppose. 55. Eat not in the streets, nor in house, out of season. Hmm. So sit down and eat in the appropriate setting, I guess. 56. Associate yourself with men of good quality if you esteem your own reputation, for tis better to be alone than in bad company. 
We still hear that one a lot, and I think that's solid. That That is solid. We hear that a lot in, in speaking to kids, especially. And what I think is something that could definitely be carried better as an adult. We tend to forget that. And, you know, keeping good company is so important. And we've seen entire leadership methodologies and books and curriculums based on your circle and, you know, being the average of whatever company that you're in. 57. In walking up and down in a house, only with one in company, if he be greater than yourself, at the first give him the right hand, and stop not till he does, and be not the first that turns. And when you do turn, let it be with your face toward him. If he be a man of great quality, walk not with him cheek by jowl, but somewhat behind him, but yet in such a manner that he may easily speak to you. So a little bit, walking a little bit behind someone not too close, and don't crowd them on the turn. It's interesting how some of these, again, I would put that in the category of things that just kind of naturally happen with friends and social circles. 58. Let your conversation be without malice or envy, for tis a sign of a tractable and commendable nature, and in all causes of passion, admit reason to govern. That's a tough one to do. We often forget that when we're talking poorly of others or gossip that... You're really showing your own character. When you're showing malice or envy for really any conversation that you're talking about, you're exposing your nature. That's a really tough one and one that we like to deny, let alone forget. 59. Never express anything unbecoming, nor act accordingly, rules of moral before your inferiors. Hmm. That one's another one that's kind of cut off in the middle, so I don't know totally what they're talking about there. 60. Be not immodest in urging your friends to discover a secret. Hmm. 61. Utter not base and frivolous things amongst grave and learned men, nor very difficult questions or subjects among the ignorant or things hard to be believed. Stuff not your discourse with sentences among your betters nor equals. That is a complex one and one that I have seen. It's one that I don't see, and it's one that's hard to see in yourself. I examine myself for this sometimes, and I try to think about it, and I want to think about it more, but it's hard to recognize. But I've noticed it that if you're in the company of someone who doesn't have that and and they've kind of fallen into that trap, I think specifically of saying, you know, among the ignorant or things hard to be believed or you know, that, that hard-to-believe story is going to present you as a liar, whether it's true or not. It, that perception is going to be there, perhaps. And if you're among your betters, stuff not your discourse with sentences amongst your betters, nor equals. So kind of be careful with your tongue. Let them speak more and first. Hmm. And don't try to throw a lot of deep subjects into a crowd that's really not set up for it. I'm definitely guilty of that. 62. Speak not of doleful things in a time of mirth or at the table. Speak not of melancholy things as death and wounds. And if others mention them, change if you can the discourse. Tell not your dreams, but to your intimate friend. I like how it puts that emphasis on the difference in quality of relationship and what's appropriate to speak to who about. That is something I want to explore more going forward for sure is gauging what is the company that I'm in and what is appropriate to be sharing here and what's not. 
63, a man ought not to value himself or his achievements or rare qualities, virtued or kindred. Sixty-four, break not a jest where none take pleasure in mirth. Laugh not aloud, nor at all without occasion. Deride no man's misfortune, though there seem to be some cause. So even if it's deserved, you don't need to be laughing at people's misfortune. Interesting. Where none take pleasure in mirth, laugh not aloud, nor at all without occasion. So don't just go throwing out laughs, pity laughs, out-of-control laughs, nervous laughs. 65. Speak not injurious words, neither in jest nor earnest scoff at none, although they give occasion. So whether it's sarcasm or deserved wrath, don't injure others with your words. That's a tough one. 66. Be not forward, but friendly and courteous, the first to salute, hear, and answer, and be not pensive when it's a time to converse. So be open with your conversation. Make good conversation. 67. Detract not from others, neither be excessive and commanding. Hmm. There's a lot packed into these and a lot to keep in mind. Like, are you being a good host? And I have to say, as complicated as it is with rule after rule, when I think about the most respectable people that I've met in life, they meet all of these, whether that be naturally or with a mix of nature and just work and upbringing and, and general discipline. It just kind of all comes together, probably like riding a bike. You know, you get a picture of the whole thing and you just, you, you keep at it and you work at it. And it's a skill that you don't necessarily lose if you have the right discipline. I hope to be that person someday. 68, go not thither where you know not, whether you shall be welcome or not. Give not advice without being asked, and when desired, do it briefly. Oh, that's a tough one. Another weakness of mine. If people aren't asking you for advice, don't give it. And even when they do ask for it, do it briefly. Don't overshare. I have been aware of that in my life, and I don't want to be that person I'm working to scale it back. 69. If two contend together, take not the part of either unconstrained, and be not obstinate. Hmm. So two people are in an argument. Don't take sides at least not in an unconstrained manner, and don't be obstinate and get dragged into the argument. Oh, in your opinion, obstinate in your opinion, and things indifferent be of the major side. So the side that's winning, if it doesn't really matter, be of the side that... I wonder what the major side implies. Number 70, reprehend not the imperfections of others, for that belongs to parents, masters, and superiors. Don't call out other people's shortcomings. Wonderful. It's not our place. Don't do it. Focus on yourself. 71. Gaze not on the marks or blemishes of others, and ask not how they came. What you may speak in secret to your friend, deliver not before others. Don't overshare. 72. Speak not in any unknown tongue in company, but in your own language, in that as those of quality do, and not as ye vulgar, sublime matters treat seriously. 73. Think before you speak, pronounce not imperfectly, nor bring out your words too hastily, but orderly and distinctly. 74. When another speaks, be attentive yourself, and disturb not the audience. If any hesitate in his words, help him not, nor prompt him. 
it is kind of demeaning when people do that. Just let them come to that conclusion on their own and, and let them find the words on their own, I guess. Without desired, interrupt him not, nor answer him till his speech be ended. 75. In the midst of discourse, ask, but if you perceive any stop because of more damage to proceed, if a person of quality comes in while you're conversing, it's handsome to repeat what was said before. Catch him up on the conversation. 76. While you are talking, point not with your finger at him of whom you discourse, nor approach too near him to whom you talk, especially to his face. 77. Treat with men at fit times about business and whisper not in the company of others. 78. Make no comparisons, and if any of the company be commended for any brave act of virtue, commend not another, not another for the same. 79. Be not apt to relate news if you know not the truth thereof. In discoursing of things you have heard, name not your author, always a secret discover not. That's a really tough one, where feel like it's hard to find people that are even keeping up with the news at all. Anyway, it's like everybody is just getting any kind of information through whatever social media puts at them in that. And, you know, the best they're going to get is, is a headline of some company with an agenda. And they're saying, you know, don't be talking about things. Don't introduce things into a conversation if you don't know the truth about it. That's a great reminder for today. 80. Be not tedious in discourse or in reading unless you find the company pleased therewith. Oh, that's uh, that's convicting. I tend to be tedious with pretty much everything, and I know that annoys people. And I can be sitting there like I need to scale back because I know it about myself, and I still do it. It's a work in progress. 81. Be not curious to know the affairs of others, neither approach to those that speak in private. 82. Undertake not what you cannot perform, but be careful to keep your promise. Mm. Don't promise things that you can't keep. And if you do promise something, make sure that you keep it. Your word means something. That, I'm, so, I'm sitting here trying to think before I brag on myself, you know, did I, am I violating any of the rules here? And I'm sure I am, but I don't have time to think about it right now. But that I would consider a strength of mine. My word, I, I definitely make sure my word means something and that I try to think before I speak on what I can undertake and what I cannot. 83, when you deliver a matter, do it without passion and with discretion, however mean person be you do it too hmm. so deliver matter without passion and with discretion i think in, in generally everything a good amount of self-control and restraint just goes a long way it seems like a theme in all these rules when your superiors talk to anybody hearken not neither speak nor laugh 85 in company of these of higher quality than yourself speak not till you are asked a question, then stand upright, put your hat and answer in few words. 86. In disputes, be not so desirous to overcome as not to give liberty to each one to deliver his opinion and submit to ye judgment of ye major part, especially if they are judges of the dispute. 87. As becomes a man grave, damage, settled and attentive, damage, dict not at every damage, turn what others say. I have no idea. Lost to time. 88. Be not tedious in discourse. Make not many digressions, nor repeat often the same manner of discourse. Oh, I'm guilty of that, too. You just kind of repeat the same thing over and over again, or you say it, and you think, man, that was good. They need to hear that from me again. Or like, I like that, or I want to remember that, or they didn't understand it fully. Just show some restraint, some self-control. Don't be too passionate. Don't be 
oversharing and just speak what you mean in a calm, pleasant way. Speak not evil of the absent, for it is unjust. I think that's universally, like, we're probably never going to lose that. And God forbid, I, I sit here saying that, and it'll probably be the next big thing. But don't talk behind, don't talk poorly behind people's back. 90, being set at meat, scratch not, neither spit, cough, or blow your nose, except there's a necessity for it. I think that's pretty widely accepted there. We know that one. 91. Make no show of taking great delight in your victuals. Feed not with greediness. Cut your bread with a knife. Lean not on the table. Neither find fault with what you eat. I'm good. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I want to enjoy the food in front of me, and I want everybody at the table to know how much I enjoy it. And I can definitely see how it's annoying to others. And this is why I love reading this kind of stuff. Something I can work on. Just eat your food. Not everybody needs to hear about every bite, and not everybody needs to hear you complain about food that's not bad, and I am certainly guilty of both. 92. Take no salt or cut bread with your knife greasy. Interesting. Hmm. So I guess they probably took salt with a knife. So if your knife was greasy and you leave grease in the salt, it's kind of gross. Or leave grease on the bread. For other people that are also engaging in that. 93. Entertaining anyone at table, it is decent to present him with meat. Undertake not to help others undesired by ye master. Number four. If you soak bread in the sauce, let it be no more than what you put in your mouth at a time, and blow not your broth at table, but stay till cools of itself. Hmm. I'm trying to think if I've ever heard that before, like blowing on your soup to make sure that it, you know it's not too hot for your mouth. Just sit it and let it be patient. Just the way that that speaks to patience, I think, in itself is a lesson. 95, put not your meat to your mouth with your knife in your hand, neither spit forth the stones of any fruit, pie upon a dish, nor cast anything under the table. 96, it's unbecoming to stoop much to one's. Meat, keep your fingers clean, and when foul, wipe them on a corner of your table napkin. Hmm. So don't lean down over your plate and get to your food. Bring the food up to your mouth. Very nice. That's something I can also work on. Put not another bit into your mouth till the former be swallowed. Let not your morsels be too big for the jowls. Always a good reminder. 98. Drink not nor talk with your mouth full, neither gaze about you while you are drinking. I've never thought about that. Am I trying to gaze at people while I'm drinking? There's, I, I don't drink so much with meals anymore either, which is, so I guess, I guess it makes sense. Drink not too leisurely, nor yet too hastily. Before and after drinking, wipe your lips, breathe, not even then or ever with too great a noise, for it's uncivil. Very interesting. I do see how drinking can be impolite. It's just the noises that go along with it. If you do it too quickly or you just too daintily, there's a good balance to it. 100. Cleanse not your teeth with the tablecloth, napkin, fork, or knife. But if others do, do it. Let it be done with a pick tooth. Hmm. So you don't want to be the one that starts it. But if they do, use a toothpick. 101. Rinse not your mouth in the presence of others. That's probably a good call. 102. It is out of use to call upon the company. Often to eat nor need you drink to others every time you drink. You don't need to offer a toast every time you lift up a glass. That Astute. 103. In company of your betters, be not, then they are, lay not your arm, but 
that's cut off. 104. It belongs to ye chiefest in company to unfold his napkin and fall to meet first, but he ought then to begin in time and to dispatch with dexterity that ye slowest may have time allowed him. So set the pace for eating. I have noticed this. You know, I tend to lean more on the side of shoveling in as fast as you can, and I, that is certainly something that I want to work on along with many other things and will. And but I, it is more rare I've seen, but also equally as annoying when you're with someone that takes like an hour to eat their food. So find the balance. 105, be not angry at table, whatever happens, and if you have reason to be so, show it not, but on a cheerful countenance, especially if there be strangers, for good humor makes one dish of meat a feast. Ah, what wisdom there. That's not about the food that you're eating, it's about the company that you're with, and the quality of that company that makes the meal. 106, set not yourself at ye upper of ye table, but if it be your due, or that ye master of ye house will have it so, contend not least you should trouble ye company. Hmm. 107 if others talk at table be attentive but talk not with meat in your mouth 108 when you speak of god or his attributes let it be seriously and in reverence honor and obey your natural parents although they be poor hmm. the financial aspect kind of gets me in there but i you know it was a lot more practical time i think 109 let your recreations be manful not sinful manful not sinful there's a lot to unpack there 110 labor to keep alive in your breast that little spark of celestial fire called conscience Ooh, labor to keep alive in your breast that little spark of celestial fire called conscience don't lose hope don't stop caring don't just give in it's worth it Here's a footnote on the last part. The, this closing maxim or injunction, the observance of which is so important in the makeup of a man's character, is thus most appropriately placed at the end, and its choice for that place is peculiarly characteristic of Washington's style. Throughout all his writings, he is especially noted for his good taste and apt allusions to his subject. In the opening and closing of his letters and communications, and the example here given is a proof that this talent was not wanting even in his earliest use. Finis. Wonderful. Well, that was very delightful to sit down and read through some rules and, and stuff of that nature. Things that we can call out on ourselves, be reminded of, and things that I don't think we get enough of. I think that manners and how you conduct yourself and how you present yourself to others is important. It's something that I want to stand for and I don't want to lose and something that I have about 75 or 80 of them that, to work on myself. So it is interesting to see the similarities too. There were very few that didn't apply to today, I feel like. The vast majority of them even from the 1500s, unbelievably so, we're here 400 plus years later, and all of these things still apply as what is polite and, and how you should present yourself for the most part. That's wonderful. That's, I mean, it's, it really speaks a lot to human nature. I mean, granted, 400 years is kind of just a blip in time as far as history and humanity and the earth goes, depending on your views and things like that. But even so, it's great to see that consistency, and it shows you that if, you know, if this is 200 plus years after it's written, we're reading it 400 years after it's written, 
And, you know, it came from somewhere. I'm sure they didn't just make these up. These French Jesuits in the 1500s didn't just sit down and make these and expect everyone to apply to them. They probably observed and pulled from society about what was already happening and then recorded that for people to have a standard and a framework because we have to live together. It shouldn't just be all about you. There should be some rules. There's some boundaries there. You know, those things are important in a society. And I think it's important for us, especially in American culture, to remember that rules and boundaries are a helpful and beneficial thing and necessary to society. And it's easy to forget that when you're living in a culture where you don't have to be hungry or worry for your life or fight or settle or do any of these things. We are just by nature of our birth living in the United States of America in the 21st century. You are the 1% of the 1% of the world. It takes only a short dip of your toes into many other countries on the planet today to understand that and I always want to remind us of that and be reminded of that. And it was just wonderful to sit down and absorb all of this and get a chance to think about it. In the future, when we go into, I want to do some Ben Franklin as well. And he was really big on tracking what is polite and what is rude and what is, you know, his juntos and societies and different things like that and that is certainly and and i think ben franklin franklin even had like he tracked throughout his day you know did he do this particular act of integrity or something to improve his character in this specific aspect and i love the idea of that so that's something that i definitely want to get into as well but this kind of gives us a snapshot into the mind of what created this person that was so stoic and hidden and didn't readily show his emotions, which is very impressive for such a passionate man as Washington was. As we discussed earlier, he was prone to losing it every once in a while. And we find that the more you study people from that age, especially our founding fathers, that was certainly a common characteristic between a lot of them. But for him to have the poise and keep it together the way that he did for so much of the time in the face of war, in the face of bullets and blood and being attacked politically and all of the stresses of life, these are the kind of rules that he took and applied to his life and that ultimately played a big part in shaping his character and who he was, which mixed with opportunity, some luck, hard work, lots of hard work and sacrifice and bravery, created the man that we're still talking about today that will live in infamy. And that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. And it's not a perfect thing. It comes with a lot of bad mixed with the good. It comes with a lot of sin mixed with this righteousness. And But it was a life lived. And as we all have, you know, our lives are going to be mixed much the same way, hopefully, with some level of impact. Now, obviously Washington shoes are big ones to fill, but understand that so that, you know, a man that comes from a life of sin, even a sin as egregious as slavery and things like that, there are egregious sins in our own lives that we either ignore or don't yet know the magnitude of in the age that we live in today. And I think that is definitely a needed reminder for us in today's world. 
So as we move on, we're going to be looking more into uh, Washington, his most famous writings, more of his journals, diary writings, things like that, and talking about who he was, where he came from, his life. And if you're following along in Chernow's Washington book, just keep plugging along. I would encourage you, if you're not, to get the book. It is absolutely fantastic. I'm around 100, 150 pages in right now. It's going splendidly. Cherno is an absolute magician, and he really brings Washington to life in a fair and comprehensive way, I believe, really giving you the whole scope and the whole picture. So check it out. Um, as always, if you enjoy the podcast or you hate the podcast, leave a rating. Leave a comment, leave a review, follow on our socials, American Reader Facebook page is probably the best way to do that, or my personal Facebook page is also public as a podcast, so whatever you do, thank you for listening with me, thank you for taking this time with me, it's always a great time, and I appreciate you being here. Any sharing and um, support of the cause would be appreciated so we can keep on pushing forward and growing this audience, and I'm out, see you guys next time.